Hello, welcome to this uh, new episode of uh, Grown in Asia. And today we are very uh, pleased to have a new guest, uh, Alessandro Bizani, who is the uh, founder of uh, Being Operation. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much for being here. My first podcast. Very excited. Very excited oh. to share my story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we will uh, thank Alessandro another time because I understand that uh, is uh, you're having a problem with your voice. You know, you have a, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. So a little bit. So don't be surprised if uh, during the course of this podcast you hear him uh, coughing. This has nothing to do with <laughs> the virus that is spreading out in Asia at the Definitely moment. Definitely not. Just for information, we're recording this uh, podcast right before Chinese New Year. this could be year. our last podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as the tradition goes, um, you will tell us about your experience as an entrepreneur. We'll discuss a little bit about, you know, I mean, what you've done, the kind of studies, if it helped you. Um, people listening to this podcast know the process. And, uh, but first, can you um, introduce yourself in a, in a, in a few words? So my name is Alessandro Bizani. I am the founder and president of BN Corporations. We're a sustainability engineering company specializing in the built environment and making the built environment better for uh, the occupants, better for the world and uh, future proofing buildings for against climate change and resilience. Okay. And so this company is in Hong Kong. It's an Hong Kong business. So the company originally started in 2009 in Shanghai. I opened the company when I was living there. I was previously working for an engineering firm, um, saw an opportunity in the market, and uh, started it. So it's originally a Shanghai-based company. Mm. Our headquarters and our main office mm. is still in Shanghai. Very proud to say that it's a Shanghainese company that's now expanded all over the world. We have 10 offices uh, and projects in 29 countries. Well, impressive. And so you mentioned your engineering background. So um, I actually don't have an engineering uh, background, oh, okay. and I ended up running an engineering company. So I uh, I specialized in in sustainability. I kind of fell in love with sustainability mm. at a young age when I was in high school here in Hong Kong, and uh, knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I went to McGill and I studied uh, environment, specifically environment and economics. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I started to look at urban planning and how um, the urban form can impact our built environment and, and obviously sustainability and climate change. And that's when I got introduced to specifically green buildings. And when I made my way to China, I wanted to work in sustainability. It didn't really work in, in the beginning, and we can talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> and eventually made my way to, to work for a large engineering company that specialized in green buildings and mm -hmm. I think was at the forefront of that at the time, specifically EcoCities. And uh, kind of that's, that's that really. Mm -hmm. I was always just... Uh, but know, very interesting because um, I've had a couple of uh, guests on this podcast already and something I was interesting in you know, discussing with this case is... At the time, the uh, at the time they moved to the university, they joined the university. Whether they had an idea of what they wanted to do later, and whether what they learned at the university was actually helpful in their, you know, in their career. So it looks like I, mean, I think you're the first guest <laughs> that we have on this podcast. Who, uh, I mean, it looks like you knew very early on what you wanted to do. I I did. I think. Um it, it, for, for really for me, it was an epiphany. I, I was in high school. I was a senior here in Hong Kong mm -hmm. at HKIS, and uh, I took a course in sustainability, and it and it just resonated with mm -hmm. me very very strongly. 
and um, my dad being a hardcore banker okay. uh, didn't want me to just go into a sustainability degree so we coupled it together with economics so officially Good my, compromise. Uh, <laughs> my, my bachelor's <laughs> is in environmental economics um, which kind of made everybody happy mm. right um, and it was interesting at the time so when I was in university the concept of sustainability as a, as a field of study was still very new it's, yeah I mean, because I, think, I mean when was that it was like 15 years ago or I, we I entered in 2002 so 2002 mm. to 2006 I was in I was yeah so McGill. sustainability was not as much as a hot topic that it is today right yeah definitely i mean obviously it's been a topic for a long time but in the in the form of academic studies there was no textbook mm. you know we there was a multidisciplinary uh, degree so i took courses in everything from geology to urban planning to uh you know uh, economics and macroeconomics so a lot of the courses that i had were um basically uh, papers that the professors had put together into a textbook so a lot of it was really studying what the professors believed mm. about that subject nothing was really standardized which was good and bad in a way i mean it opened my eyes to a lot of thinking of these progressive leaders uh, in the market but then at the same time i think there was a lack of structure at the time that i think probably now doesn't exist so when you circling back to your original point of whether my university degree was incredibly important in the work I do today, I would probably say no, not so much. Not so much. Not okay. so much. It gave I you mean, a direction. It definitely gave me a direction, and I knew, and it fueled me for, for what I wanted to do, and it just reinforced the fact that this is what I wanted to do over time. And I think that because halfway through my studies, I discovered this, um, that I had a, a liking to urban planning, and I, I ended up doing a second degree in urban planning, and through that discovered green buildings and, and, and discovered that I had a passion in that, right? Mm. And so I think because of that, I think I do what I, what I do today. Okay, so before we start you know, exploring more about you know, what was the next step after the university, um, you say green buildings. So can you explain what is that exactly? <laughs> very, very good, good, uh, good question. For me, green buildings are buildings that look to the future. So the impact that the building not only has on uh, itself, but the community and the people that are inside it, and then the legacy that it leaves for generations to come. So it's not only about the materials that are used for, uh, I mean, developing the building. Definitely not. Materials is obviously a huge mm. component to it, and I think is an often overlooked mm. component because of the life cycle mm. and the cost of these materials throughout their entire mm. life, from production all the way to waste. But uh, it's also about water. It's also about energy consumption. Uh, it's okay. also about human health and comfort. Mm. Human health is probably now the next frontier in green buildings. So not only how do we make buildings that use less resources but also how do we make buildings that are better and improve the occupant's health and that's a lot of what i do today is that so what kind of um, skills and talents do you need to develop a green building then compared to a traditional building where you have uh, i don't know an architect and then a construction company 
uh, it looks like there are many more um, you know skills that you have to assemble to build a, a, a green building that can actually be called by this name. You hit it right nail right on the head. That's exactly what it is. It's a multidisciplinary process. So a lot of what we do is we bring together all of these disciplines that maybe never talk to each other and to look at ways. So the way that I that I look at a building from uh, you know improving its efficiency, I, th I think of it as a living organism. No one piece lives in isolation. Everything impacts something else, another system within the building. So whenever we design a building, we look at how orientation impacts solar gain, and solar gain impacts the sizing of the uh, air conditioning system that you need to put in there. The color of your walls impacts what the temperature is on the room. Um, the light trespass of the windows. There's so many details. Oh, so it goes into very slight details, right? From the most macro level, where you start just with the massing of a building, and you look at orientations and shading and sizing mm. and so forth, all the way down and through the whole process, when you start to get into the final design, and you look at the minute details, such as the colors of the walls and and whether you're including greenery for air purification and cooling purposes. So it's an, it's an integrated process, which sometimes gets uh, left behind because you have normally a developer with a great vision, a great architect that wants to build a great building, but then somewhere along the line, things get lost. Maybe they get cut out, maybe uh, certain practices in a, in a certain country are difficult to do, and so things get lost. And, when you have a final product, it's not really the intent, especially in terms of sustainability of what it started out to be. And when I opened uh, the company back in 2009, that's the, what I, the problem that I wanted to solve. I saw exactly that happening. You have these, these amazing visionaries wanting to build these buildings, but then when it got down to actually the brick and mortar and getting, getting it together, uh, things got lost. So I wanted to create a company that didn't just specialize in architecture, didn't just specialize in engineering, didn't just look at water systems or materials, it looked at everything and it became some uh, a piece that remained involved from the very beginning all the way to after the project is finished, kind of the glue that holds all the pieces together. That so was our mission. Okay, it's kind of a holistic approach. Absolutely. Know, to say, also at the university. Yeah. So. <laughs> And then, okay, so thank you for this uh, few words, you know, explaining what is a green building. We'll come back to that. So we left you when you were at the university in McGill. And right. then after that, you, uh, you had your first, um, I don't know, job position, your first position, sorry, in a company in, in Canada. You came back to Hong Kong. You moved straight to China. Straight to China. Straight to China. Any I, reason I, you wanted to go to China or you had a good opportunity there? Or you, Yes, I had an opportunity. I mean, I knew that China was where I needed to be in terms of the, the market development and, in, and especially the opportunities that it presented. I eventually did want to go back to Hong Kong, but I felt that it was too early. I felt I could get a better working experience in China. So I had interviewed for a position already, I think kind of halfway through my senior year, and I knew that I had it. Uh, so I graduated in end of May and by early July I, you know, I started my work in Shanghai um, and I started off doing uh, not exactly what I wanted to be doing but in, in retrospect. Starting in a bank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> management consulting. Management <laughs> consulting firm. But looking back it actually gave me a wonderful wonderful foundation and I would do it the same way again. 
So it was a small Italian-run uh, market entry management consultancy firm, and we did a lot of uh, market research studies, mm -hmm. economic analysis for foreign companies that wanted to to enter China. So. Actually, it gave me a first-hand look of how to open a business in China, mm -hmm. the laws, the regulations, the taxes, and everything. And my, my mandate was to also look at opportunities for sustainability, specifically Italian companies that wanted to uh, offer their services mm -hmm. in China. But that really wasn't the main mission of the firm. It was sustainability in relation to buildings or more general? General. General. So it was, you know, because it's a management consultancy. Mm. So we worked with everybody from jewelry manufacturers, steel manufacturers, you know. And so I was looking at Italian companies that offered sustainable products to see how we could uh, kind of bring them into China. That I didn't have a lot of success with that. I think um, at the time, especially back in, you know, in, in 2000, and this was 2006, middle 2006, mm. there was still a bit of hesitation mm. about China, especially with some of these more innovative type of technologies. Um, and so I, I, after a year, I felt mm. like I needed a move. And I, um, I was part of one of the jobs that I had. I helped organize a, uh, a banquet in Hong Kong, actually, um, for the launch of what was supposed to be the world's first eco-city. Okay. And I had uh, never heard of Arup before. Mm. Uh, they're the engineering company, the masterminds behind this. And so I had organized this, this banquet, not really knowing what it was about. I ended up sitting next to one of the people that worked on this master plan for uh, Dongtang Eco City on Chongming Island. And listening to the presentations of the, the integrated sustainable nature of the city that was being built from the ground up, I fell in love. I fell in love within the first 10 seconds of it, and I said, I have to work for, for this company. And so after that, um, that banquet, I uh, harassed them uh, nonstop, nonstop. Uh, for a job, and they weren't hiring uh, for specifically for that project. So I went to another department and interviewed, and then I didn't get hired, and I went to another one and didn't get hired. And five interviews later, I think they decided, you know, five interviews, Why five interviews, in five interviews. Well, they, I Google, went to right? all the different departments that the, that this company could have. I was just dead set. And um, I think eventually they were like, this guy's not going to go away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if we don't give him a job, he's going to keep bothering us. So I, I got a job uh, with them. And this um, was a Italian company as well? Or no, Arup is a huge global mm. multinational engineering company originally from the UK. Okay. It's a British company, but their office in China is, um, is quite large and do a lot of very innovative projects. The Bird's Nest in Beijing, CCTV Tower, and at the time were really the pioneers in, in eco-city work. And, and I would argue probably defined how eco-cities are designed. Um, uh, they were the first. And so um, I joined them. And so I got a, a really great experience looking at, again, going back to kind of my urban planning uh, days and studying. But then somewhere along the lines, I realized the tremendous market opportunities specifically for green buildings, individual green buildings. And I, during that time, got reconnected to a green building certification called LEED, L-E-E-D. Yeah. Okay. 
And now you, when you enter some buildings in China or in Hong Kong, you can see that the building is LEED certified. That's right. That's right. It's the number one uh, third-party green building certification in the world. It's, uh, who, who gave this certification? Uh, it's a non-profit organization based in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. called the United States Green Building Council that officially creates the LEED standard. So when a person or, excuse me, a project applies for a LEED rating, it gets sent to them and they audit the building and verify that it does comply with the requirements. And so noted at the time the building is open to public or it's an yeah. ongoing audit just to make sure that the, the, the building will you know, remain green over years? They have both, they mm -hmm. have both. So um, they have a, a certification for how a building is designed and constructed And then they also have different certifications for how it's managed and operated. Mm -hmm. So it, it covers the entire life cycle of the, of okay. the, of the building, really. And um, so, so then kind of just started to shift my focus uh, away from more of a master planning large scale to specifically focusing on entire buildings and even interiors, offices mm -hmm. and retail spaces and so forth. But you say you realized that there was a massive market for a green building. So how did you uh, come to that conclusion at that point? People, people were questioning your, um, this company you've been, you, you work for about, okay, how can we build our first green building or? Um, exactly, yeah, the amount of requests that they got. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there was a, there was a shift uh, right around that time in the discourse of buildings in China where um, municipalities were fighting for the tallest building, the biggest building. At some point, it became who has the greenest building. Or, and it became a kind of a mandatory requirement that their sustainability features needed to be looked at. And I think that overall, China was really changing the way that it looked at construction, realizing that it's one of the top sources of, of pollution, especially indirect pollution, because buildings are responsible for the demand on the, on the energy system. So um, that shift was taking place quite rapidly. I noticed the amount of demand that the, the company was getting. And so that's how kind of it all, it all started. And that's how I saw the first, the first uh, peak into the market. But there was a true intention to build this green building or was it more like, a, maybe I should not say that, but like a sales, uh, you know, a, a point of sales, a sale argument, a marketing argument? So, okay, we, we're building a, a building that is a green building, the same way as some people say, oh, that building has been designed by X and, uh, and okay. all the furniture are coming from uh, Z brand or, or not. Definitely. There's, mm. a, there's a tremendous amount of marketing mm. associated to it. Um, I, I used to live in China at that time. Okay. It's not I, just China. I, 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 I was, uh, yeah, I know it's not in China, but I remember being in China and in China at that time, there was so much construction going on. And uh, okay, I didn't develop the same interest for eco cities and, uh, and green buildings, but I remember seeing this uh, signs everywhere, you know, in the streets saying uh, green building, green building, green building. And I always wonder at that time how green these buildings were actually. Yeah. Well, that's why, and I think that that question is the key question because most people, no matter if it's green buildings or whether it's a product, don't necessarily believe the manufacturer when they claim that it's green. There's a concept called greenwashing, right? Which is kind of uh, saying that you're sustainable, but ultimately you're not. Yeah, it's and something like when you buy food, it says that the, the food is organic. Right. And you're like, okay, is There's it really organic or just yeah. uh, marketing? 
Well, so so that's why the third party certification is became so important, and I think that's why the market was growing so fast because people didn't believe developers then said that they built the green building. They needed someone third party outside of the design and construction team to say yes, indeed, this is a, a green building, and that's why Lead was was growing so fast in China at the time, mm. for that very reason. Okay, and so you stay with this company for how long? I was there for two and a half years, mm -hmm. and uh, at one point I started to to get antsy because I wanted to to do more, and I had a an opportunity that came by my desk. Um, it was a um, an amazing, amazing hotel project um, that ended up getting the uh, the award for uh, best designed hotel in China of the completion, and then which one is that? It's called Naked Stables. Oh, okay, yeah, I've been right? there. Mm -hmm. Very, very famous. So at the time, it was just a concept, and uh, Arup had passed it on. So they didn't want to, to bid on the project. And um, I fell in love. I knew that I needed to work on it. And so uh, through LinkedIn, mm -hmm. I found the contact of the, the owner, the developer. Mm -hmm. And I found a guy that knew him and asked him to put me in touch, and I did. And I, uh, I somehow convinced him to meet me for coffee under the pretense of something else. I think talking about some sort of an NGO work. And then... I ended up selling him the idea of me coming on board uh, mm -hmm. consulting as a, as a third-party kind of consultant looking at LEED because they were doing a LEED certification, mm -hmm. LEED Platinum. And, uh, and so he looked at me and he said, wait a minute, you, you got Why me you? here to talk about this, <laughs> but you're selling me your company? And I was like, uh-oh. And he's like, I love it. I love it. Tell me more. And so, uh, so they hired. So they hired me. That was in, um, I quit my job. I think it was uh, November of 2009 and uh, opened officially the company originally the first legal registration was was in hong kong but i was still in shanghai in uh, december uh, december 11th uh, 2009 so okay and so at that time the company was doing consulting it was just well, me. It was you. Okay, well, okay. At the time, yeah, it was but just you knew me. it would be growing, right? So. Me from my living room. Yeah. I had a computer, a printer on mm. the living room, uh, and I was consulting on this one project mm. that I had, uh, focusing on the lead certification and on materials specifically. And I was going back and forth between Shanghai and Mogansan, mm -hmm. where the where the project is, uh, looking after the construction, looking after the design. And it was amazing because for the first time I got my hands dirty. I, I, you know, I saw the site from when it was there was nothing there mm. all the way through to when the project eventually got built and became the first mm. lead platinum hotel in China. Platinum is the highest mm. rating that you can get under the lead certification system. So it was just a tremendous, uh, tremendous outcome and tremendous achievement and opportunity for me. So then that's how the company slowly started. So but then in practice, what did you do during this uh, few weeks or months uh, you consulted for um, this hotel in Mangenshan? No, I ended up consulting for that project for quite a few years. A few the years, company okay. basically built itself around it. Mm. Uh, okay. That was the very first project. It was the one that gave me enough uh, money to quit and know that I could pay my rent mm. and buy food, basically. Uh, and the rest was bootstrapped mm. from there. So when I wasn't working on that project, I was trying to go out and get, mm. get more projects. And the original business plan that I had for the company was very different than what it ended up being. Because um, when I first launched, the business model that I had was to be a materials consultancy. I wanted to specialize only 
in green building materials. And that's actually what I was really hired to do for this Naked Stables project. And um, so you mean checking if materials used for the construction of the building were compliant with the uh, LEED requirements? So at the end, the building can get this LEED certificate? Correct. And then I also wanted to take one step further and mm -hmm. source them. Oh, okay. So I wanted to provide a consultancy piece to Green Materials, but then also be a sourcing agency, mm -hmm. mainly for projects outside of China that needed to get lead compliant products for their green building, for their lead project in Europe or in the United States. Um, but what ended up happening when I started to tell my network and the people that, that I knew that I had you know, met over this course of time in China, everybody just started asking me to provide full lead consultancy services. So full engineering services, mechanical, electrical, building physics, energy modeling, everything that we discussed before. And so I had to pivot quite quickly from the original business mm. model to respond to that demand. So the first full project that I was hired for was here in Hong Kong. It was the Rosedale Hotel in mm -hmm. Taikaltoi. And um, the developer wanted a LEED certification. It was their first LEED certification. And at that time, again, I had zero employees <laughs> and zero engineers, but I somehow... Uh, convinced them to uh, to hire me, and so I did. And I I will never forget the night that the first payment was made for that project, mm -hmm. the down payment. I didn't touch a dime of that money because I was too terrified to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but we ended up getting it, and and through that project and through that first mm -hmm. down payment, I got myself an office and I got myself our first employee, I specifically hired based on skill and the skills that I needed. At that time, I really needed uh, an engineer with an HVAC background. But was it easy to find these kind of skills on the market? So or? difficult. I mean, we'll get to it later, but I think human resources mm. still, still is the most difficult part of running any business. But back at the, at the time in 2009, or by now it was probably 2010, when I, when I started working on this project, um, young engineers didn't want to join a startup company with no financing <laughs> and basically an office, you know. So everybody that I interviewed, they said no. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically everybody said no until I, uh, I got very, very lucky and I hired uh, a young graduate, mm -hmm. uh, incredibly talented, that was crazy enough to say, sure, you know, I'll, I'll come work. <laughs> this, sounds like a cool, <laughs> this sounds like a good project. And she ended up staying with us for many years, and I still keep in touch with her. Um, and that was the first, em first employee. And, you know, after that project, it came a, a third project and a fourth project and a fifth project. So with every project, I started to build the team up. Mm -hmm. I started to improve efficiency and, um, and started to basically expand a little bit what we do and the size of the projects we do. And it kind of went from there. So it's a fully bootstrapped, no financing mm -hmm. type of uh, startup. <laughs> That's a good start. And uh, the first two projects that you mentioned, so um, the uh, Naked Stable in, uh, in, uh, in Mogenshan and then um, Rosendale, in, uh, Rosendale in, uh, in Hong Kong, it looks like... I know this bus place, it's kind of black sheep, right? Uh, so is it the, the other project that you, um, on which you worked, uh, number three, number four, was so, were there also big projects like that and kind of black sheep? Uh, or you could, you know, 
embark on projects that will be more, um, you know, mainstream? Because there may be a cost issue. I don't know. I'm asking. There may be a cost issue of developing a green building versus a standard building. I think there was back then a lot more. I think the added cost of construction, especially to do a certification, was more expensive back then, depending also on the type of level of certification mm. you wanted to go. But it was an additional, what, 10, 15, 20, 30%? Or? On average, I would say probably 10 to 15%. Mm. But in cases of very high performance, mm. it could go above 30%. Okay. Because, and, and it, it's very specific to the typology. I mean, If you think about naked stables and the remote area in which they were building and the level mm. of efficiency that they were doing with labor that had never even seen or heard of things like this, I mean, they really were inventing uh, how, how to do something like that. I mean, they built half of their villas out of earth, is rammed earth. And the other half is a prefabricated material that was put together like a Lego, like a Lego piece uh, in, in five days. I mean, th they were so ahead of their time in their construction and design practices, even today would be considered mm. uh, advanced. So there's a certain, it, it, there is no standard in terms of added cost. And it's also the, the, the perception of added cost is what you, you, where it depends on where your baseline is. If you're, uh, if you want to achieve something and that's what you want to do, it's not an added cost. It's just how you design and construct. Um, it's a different story with more established brands like, uh, you know, the Rosedale Hotel mm. or Shangri-La, which ended up being our, our, one of our largest clients, especially in the early years, is that they already had a very set way to design and construct buildings. And then uh, putting in a green building certification meant that they needed to change the process or change their materials or change the way they design. And so that is an added mm. cost. Um, but eventually that change is no longer an added cost, it's just how they do it, right? Mm -hmm. That's just how it's done. So what I and have the fact seen- that If you run a, a green building over time, do you also save time with absolutely. the management of the building? So it's an initial investment is higher, but over time, you know, you uh, basically you make this money back. Exactly, yeah, mm -hmm. you make your money back in energy savings, mm -hmm. water savings, for sure. So is that one of the argument that you have for your clients or? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. We save, we save a tremendous amount of energy, but also we attract better tenants. The tenants stay for mm -hmm. longer. The employees are more productive in offices that, have, uh, that are designed with sustainable and especially health and wellness principles inside of it. And I think everybody knows now, but in those early days, I think people didn't. I think it was most of it is marketing. Going back to your yeah. original point, I think in order to have what was considered a grade A building, you needed to have a green building certification. And then there was the, you know, all of the the selling points, right, of how much energy it saves, what the payback is, and so forth. But you know, nowadays, I don't even really talk about that anymore. I used to have to sell that really hard and say, this this is what your payback. This is how much money you're saving. Now it's like Well, if you don't do it, you're not grade A. If you don't do it, you're behind. Is, is it also because people have this, I mean, people, people constructing a building, building, uh, constructing buildings, sorry. Uh, is it because also now they have this more, they're more aware about, you know, uh, climate change and uh, environmental issues? I think that there is a tremendous improvement in knowledge across the board mm -hmm. from all disciplines uh, in China for sustainable construction, for sure. I think it has a long way to go, but I think that definitely helps. 
But I think that the change is really more on the demand side. I think that developers understand that if they want grade A tenants and if they want to charge premiums, they need to have some aspect of sustainability. And if it's third-party audited, it's even better. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. But which countries are the most advanced today in terms of uh, green buildings? Well, I think uh, the United States. Let I me rephrase it. Is there, is there any countries where there are strict regulations now when, when, you, uh, when you construct a building, you have to make it green to some extent? Or are it still a decision to be made, so just a commercial decision by the developer? No, no, I do think like, for example, the state of California has very advanced regulations in terms of energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of the Nordic countries in Europe have very, very strict regulations. Germany has strict mm -hmm. regulations. Um, so in some cases, building a green building of what would be considered a green building as a standard in China is already been done uh, to a maybe even higher degree in those, in those countries, mm -hmm. so for sure. Mm. Okay, and so so you moved, um, you know, working on more and more project. And so, what were the um, the main issues? You speak about HR. <laughs> so always. the main issue was finding clients or finding people who could deliver on, you know, what your cl the clients engage you for. Uh, compared to compared to the people, finding clients is is easy. Like the hardest part was to, and especially, you know, having opened the company with, with no experience, right? Kind of mm -hmm. learning it as I was going along. Um, finding good people, retaining good people, training good people, mm -hmm. and figuring out how their career progression mm -hmm. should go is absolutely, and still today, is the hardest part of running the organization. We have 50 people now. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's a constant struggle, and it's a constant learning exercise of trial and error. For sure. But when you run uh, a job, um, you read an interview for a job, um, because there are so many skills that you need in your company in order to, uh, you know, deliver on what you, uh, you know, what you sell to your clients, you don't necessarily have all these skills. So how do you know if an engineer is a good engineer? You mentioned this first employee, uh, you don't have an engineering background, so how do you do that? Maybe it must be pretty difficult, or you spend like the, f you know, the... F 48 hours before the interview, uh, Googling, <laughs> doing some Google search on the internet or? No, I mean, I know, I think I know the system well enough mm. to know what I need, right? Okay. So I knew what I needed and I know the, I, I know the technical aspects of the green buildings well enough to be able to direct it, just not do it myself. And so I knew exactly the type of person that I needed at the time for that first project. Mm. And then from there, I ended up hiring a lot of the same type of people mm. because that was the biggest pain point. But the issue with um, the type of work we do, especially that around certifications, is that there really isn't a school that trains people for that. I hear that there are now some that are mm. coming online. I think uh, Jiao Tong University, I just learned, has a sustainable construction Uh, school that they mm. launched uh, in Shanghai. Um, but especially back then, there was no such thing. So um, I hired based on, on passion, whether they wanted to really look at green buildings and whether that, that is what was their motivation for years to come. Mm. Because everything else has to be learned, has to be taught by us. So it's done by experience. So we have a lot of training uh, that we do when, when we onboard a new, um, a new employee. 
And so you said today you have 50 We have 50, 50 people. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I remember you saying as well that now you are in 10 countries. Yeah. So you mean that you have offices in 10 countries or you have clients in these 10 countries? No, we have projects in 29 countries. Mainly, mainly in Asia or? Mainly in Asia. Okay. Still mainly in Asia, but now we work across Europe. Mm -hmm. And while we don't have offices in, uh, in any of the Americas, we do have projects in the Americas, mm -hmm. but our focus really is uh, Asia Pacific, uh, Australia, and, um, and Europe. Okay, and work, still working a lot for hotels or uh, office building, uh, shopping malls? We do, uh, we do everything except for residential. Residential is a bit of a very different market from, from what we do. You don't want to do it or it's, or it's a completely different market? Than, uh, it's, it's not that I don't want to do it. It's that it's a, it's a bit of a different skill set that mm -hmm. you need. And also the value proposition is very different. Um, so we work on either volumes of projects when it, especially in regards to retail, or we work on very large projects like high-rise commercial buildings, uh, multi-building, like mixed-use multi-building kind of projects, and that's really our specialty. That's what we we know best. Uh, so for quite a few years in the beginning, we we somehow by chance, not not because I. I wanted to fell into uh, the sector of, of hospitality. So we did a lot of hospitality work. We got a very big break with Shangri-La. We ended up working on six of their hotels. We ended up doing more uh, with Rosedale and, and some other projects. And then something very unexpected happened. Uh, along that line, we also ended up doing a few commercial offices just for companies. Mm -hmm. And we ended up doing an office for uh, Hayworth Furniture, which mm -hmm. maybe if I still, yeah, yeah. still mm -hmm. to date one of, one of our great clients from the early days in, a, in an office building in Jing'an in, in Shanghai. And just so happened by chance that Gucci had their corporate office in that same building. And Gucci's mother company, Caring, had just given all the brands a mandate to certify lead their stores. So the Gucci office at the time, not knowing what lead was, <laughs> knew that you know the building was certified and other people had done lead certification in that building. So they went to the landlord and they were like, all right, we're looking for someone that needs to do lead. And so they gave him my name. And so I got this, uh, this email and I almost deleted it. I almost deleted it because I thought it was a joke. I was like from, <laughs> from someone at Gucci saying, you know, we want to do a lead certification for, uh, for our upcoming flagship in Shanghai. And uh, good, thing I didn't, <laughs> good thing I didn't delete it. Because at that time, luxury retail just was not looking at sustainability. It just wasn't in the, in the popular discourse. And so I, I replied, and that led to our first retail project. And then shortly after that, another brand called, and then another brand called, then another brand called. And we now have certified close to 300 stores in over 20 countries and we're the largest consultancy in the world to date providing sustainable engineering advice to the luxury retail sector we work with almost every single luxury brand well and it all coming from that one email that i almost deleted right. you keep the email i definitely get the email i mean i've been in your office yeah so now if you look at the project distribution, it's heavily um, shifted to retail. We still do a lot of commercial. We still do a lot of hospitality and, and uh, some very innovative projects. But uh, by volume, retail is 
for sure our largest. And we even have a sub-brand of our company called Be Retail mm -hmm. that specifically looks at uh, deployments. And there's a lot of innovation that's happening in the retail space. But I understand when you build um, from scratch, then then you can have this holistic approach about, okay, what are the materials, and I must do this, and I must do that, so at the end I have a green building, okay? Uh, but when you speak about retail, most of these, uh, you know, uh, brands, there are, I mean, their their stores are in existing buildings. Mm -hmm. So, what exactly is the impact that you can have? Because you know the the structure is there already. How, how much improvement can you do? It's true. It's a limited improvement, obviously, compared to an entire building that doesn't exist from the ground up. But if you think of all the things that go into a fit out, the floors, the furniture, mm -hmm. the lighting, the air conditioning system, the heating system, depending on the climate. Um, Uh, the way that the filtration system works to make sure that the air is pure. There's a lot of things. And yes, the amount of energy that I may be saving from our lighting advice is small compared to what I can do for a building. But remember, it's not just one store, it's 300 stores. Mm -hmm. So when I make that change, and I make that change over so many point of sales, it adds up to a tremendous reduction in, in carbon emissions mm -hmm. overall, not to mention a fundamental shift in the way that design and construction is done. Uh, the best success story, and I unfortunately can't say the client name for confidentiality reasons, but it's a very, very famous French luxury uh, fashion brand. They uh, started uh, looking at lead certification very early on And at first, b were barely able to certify their store, barely. Mm -hmm. um, and fast forward to today, this is five years later, they have a global mandate mm -hmm. to certify every single retail area they have, whether it's um, a store or an office or a logistics center to date. Uh, and now looking at very, very innovative things, like when they buy furniture, they buy it with the idea of end of life. So they design for end of life before they purchase anything. And that all started from one tiny little store in China that decided to do a lead certification. Oh, that's great. So it planted the seed mm -hmm. and, and then it, it just grows into a paradigm shift that changes fundamentally how people look at design construction, now changing how they look at purchasing, and then now again moving into the direction of health and well-being. But then when you provide this consulting uh, on um, you know, building green building sustainability, where does it stop? Because uh, it, can't have an, it can never end. You know? uh, you're speaking about this brand, where they, they buy furniture, they think of what will be the end of life for these furnitures and so on, and so uh, how they will be recycled, and after they recycle, what do you do? So where does it end? Well, I don't know yet. Okay. I'll let you so know. Right now, we're still going. We're still going. I, But then you're adding this, I mean, this is the kind of thinking that you have in your company. So adding, again, more and more skills and talent. Exactly. Exactly. So in the beginning, we started doing one thing. Mm -hmm. We now do many, many different things. So we have officially in our corporate structure three separate departments. Mm -hmm. Our largest is the oldest, which is the Green Building Consulting. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I did manage to relaunch the original idea of the company of green materials. So mm -hmm. we have a green materials department and we do a bit of sourcing. So I'm proud to say <laughs> that I did manage to get that off the ground. And then now we have a technology division because technology is so much ingrained into everything that we do. 
So we, um, we have a department that uh, monitors performance of projects because for almost the entire existence of our, of our firm, when we finished the project, we moved on to the next one. And yes, we knew that what we were doing was helping uh, the performance of the project, but we didn't actually have any data to support it. But now with the advent of cloud systems and IoT, we're able to install sensors that monitor water consumption, energy consumption, and indoor air quality, mm. which is one of the most important subjects in this part of the world. So we can directly see how our purchasing choices in terms of fit-out materials impact air quality, how our filtration system impacts air quality, how our lighting choices, HVAC choices, impact energy consumption mm. reduction, and then obviously the same for water. And this is actual data that people can report on. And now, all of a sudden, we're not walking away. We're remaining involved in transitioning our services from just design and construction to actually how to operate and manage the projects better. Okay, so you always have to bring a more and more innovative solution to stay ahead of the game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is... Do you have a lot of competitors now? And We have, yeah. We definitely have a lot of competitors, some markets more than others. Yeah. Um, but we are very um, niche, I would say. I mean, definitely in, in retail, we have very few competitors. I think we're able to move fast in that sector. But we are still a boutique company, mm -hmm. right? Very, very small compared to the previous company. I came from Arab that has, you know, tens of thousands of employees. And we're very flexible. So when new ideas come up, we're able to go after them and implement them way faster than everybody else. And because we have a global reach with 10 offices, then we can have conversation with multinationals. So while, let's say, you know, Gucci or, uh, or Shangri-La Hotels or New World Development or anybody that has multinational presence maybe would only be speaking to large firms, they're able to speak to us because we can service them into um, multiple markets immediately ready to go and can adapt much faster than larger firms. And I think that that's probably one of our biggest advantages. And this flexibility, this uh, capability to adapt, is it also because each project is different from, from the previous one? Or is there some kind of scalability once you've done one retail store, you know that 80% of what you learn and the process that you put in place can be used for the next project? Absolutely. I think that that is the case with volume projects mm -hmm. like retail. There's a lot of replicability in retail, and I think that I actually opened an office in India specifically to support our staff because we had so many projects coming in that I needed quickly more support staff, not to mention that India is a, a tremendous market on its own. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a, another defining change in kind of like the growth of the company to be able to have that second back engineering office in India to handle the workload. Um, but there's absolutely like uh, economies of scale to the retail sector. Mm. Also, that's why we're very interested in it. But when it comes to individual buildings, not so much because we're providing tailored services. So every project is different. We know what we need to provide. We know the sequence of the tasks that we need to do. But the way we do it, the inputs and outputs change completely. And then, yeah, but I guess it depends where the building is located, the climate, and all that. I mean, and what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And what they're trying to do. I think right now on hand, the probably the most exciting and innovative project we have is a, an eco resort in Cambodia in Siem Reap called Song Sa. Mm -hmm. So it's a Song Sa reserve. It's a six, over 600 acres with oh. a lake in the middle, and they're basically building a small. Um, 
a small town that's going to be predominantly hospitality, but it's also going to have residential. It's going to have a, a small village with shopping. It's going to have energy generation, food production, and is attempting to be completely net zero, the most sustainable eco-reserve community in the world. Oh. But a project like that will keep how many of your people you know, occupied for how long? It's such <laughs> a big project. I think uh, probably the next 10 years, <laughs> well. maybe, or more. <laughs> Uh, this is a so it gives far, you some good visibility on your business, right? Yeah, no, for mm. sure, for sure. And you know, it it, it ebbs and flows mm. because we have uh, with any building design, it, we we have a lot of hours in in the beginning, mm. and then maybe it tapers off during the construction. We're just monitoring. So, and especially for a project like this, there's going to be many, many different of those kind of like highs mm. and lows in terms of time, uh, but. In large part because of that project, we opened an office in Phnom Penh to service kind of the Cambodia market and specifically that that project on its own. And I think when it's completed, it's going to be probably one of the most well-known uh, eco uh, construction projects in the world, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. you can, you've what heard is, it here first. What is the delivery date for this? To be the to be It's a long ways away. It's a long ways away. Okay, and now what is the uh, so what is the plan for uh, I mean to continue growing your business? Is it to uh, to to I mean to get engaged in this kind of consulting project in more countries? Is it to uh, move from only green building to another green thing? Or? Well, so then as I mentioned, kind of a couple of times already, I think the next big wave, the next frontier of sustainability in the building space is definitely health and wellness. Everybody is talking about health and wellness because nobody, everybody, it was easy to see how a certain design choice saved energy because you had a utility bill to prove it. But it's not so easy to define how uh, a certain material uh, caused, uh, you know, uh, volatile organic compounds and harmful gases to be released in the air that potentially gave cancer to employees, right? Because mm. it's, you can't see it. Uh, same as there's no tangible, quantifiable way to, uh, to measure how per more productive um, employees are when they're surrounded by nature and have views to the outside versus being stuck in offices with no windows and just mm. blue. But you have research on lights. that now? Or? There is, absolutely. And I think the, that movement has come. And I think uh, the, big, uh, the big push in the market was this, this organization based out of New York called the International uh, Well Building Institute, mm -hmm. IWBI. And um, they put a room of medical professionals and construction professionals you know, together in a room and they like talk to each other, you know, f figure it out. How do you build spaces that actually improve the health and well-being of, uh, of occupants? And the outcome of that was a standard called the Well Building Standard which defines 10 concepts and principles of construction and building operations that are meant to improve occupant health. And the whole principle behind the well building standard is to make buildings agents of public health. Okay. Right? Do you, I mean, do you remember what are these concepts? Maybe not the 10 of them, but one or two, yeah. just to have an idea. The most basic ones are air, having mm. clean air, water, having clean water, mm. light. So light is probably one of the most innovative ones. Uh, I think a lot of people have iPhones that are mm. listening to this podcast, and you know that there's a night shift mode that reduces the blue light. The reason why that is is because blue light suppresses your melatonin production. 
And melatonin is required on our bodies. So when we go to sleep, we, our body produces melatonin and tells us to, that, that we're tired, time to get some rest, and we wake up the next morning. That nice blue light from the sun comes up, melatonin is suppressed, and we're, we're ready to go. Problem is, is if you're exposed to blue light throughout the day, and especially at nighttime, your melatonin is suppressed. So you don't get good sleep, you wake up the next day not rested, and it's an endless cycle. So the way that we design office, especially Hong Kong offices, you know what I mean? <laughs> the golden neon light. <laughs> is that kind of, kind <laughs> of like in the room, room where yeah. we are now. <laughs> um, <coughs> that's, a very, that's a very typical thing. Um, so how do you design light in such a way that actually uh, improves productivity and, and restfulness and reduces stress and so forth? Um, those are the more technical examples. There's other non-technical examples, like, for example, having uh, employee access to mental health uh, support programs mm -hmm. or uh, encouraging uh, fitness. Encouraging fitness, by the way, can be done from a, um, a simple way, like subsidizing a gym membership mm -hmm. or uh, prioritizing staircases in the design of a building. Uh, we're thinking Inst of that. But does it work? I mean, will people actually work. take the stairs but then, then, you know, just calling the lift? It really does work. It really does work. There is an excellent example of that here in Hong Kong, the Citibank Tower. Mm -hmm. Uh, that so actually has a well certification and no matter what floor you get off on in the elevator you see very clearly indicated where the stairs are even though it wasn't originally built as a central feature they made it um, but it, you know maybe you can have landings in between staircases where people can have ad hoc meetings and there's actual natural lights you know uh, so there, there are certain design aspects that you can make. If you're limited in space, you can have modular furniture that can be pulled apart and you can use meeting rooms to do a yoga practice or a meditation room and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So there's a lot of innovative things that, that you can do. And again, this, this wall building standard has a total of 117, uh, what they call features, uh, I'd say, uh, requirements. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a lot to, to choose from. Okay. And um, oh, I had a question and I just forget. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I, just uh, I just forgot about it. No, my question was, okay, how do you, I mean, combine, you know, the success of your company being in so many countries working so, you know, different clients with your personal life? Because I guess you must be traveling a lot. So I speaking do. about health and wellness, how do you, how do you manage that? <laughs> Uh, that I'm not very good at. The, the work-life balance, I think, is always something that I strive for and, and haven't really figured out what, what the magic formula is. No, I, I think especially now because we're in such high growth mode, we opened a lot of offices these past couple of years and, and it's hard to manage all of the moving pieces. It's becoming not proportionally more difficult, exponentially mm -hmm. more, more difficult. So... Um, yeah, it's really either I'm at home or I'm, or I'm working, and most of the time I'm working at home. <laughs> I have twin girls, mm -hmm. uh, so they take up three-year-olds, mm -hmm. so I, I take up basically all of my free time with, with that. And an incredibly supportive, amazing wife who is just, you know, without her, it would not be possible to do any of this. But then have you learned to increase your productivity at work or, uh, you know, uh, learn how to better delegate, delegate. work to uh, people in your organization? Um, yeah. How do you try to manage this uh, work-life balance? De definitely delegate. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think I've always been very good at delegating. Mm -hmm. I think I, uh, I, 
my leadership style is very much leading by example, but also empowering my my staff. I, I let them succeed and I let them fail and learn from their failures and, and move on to the next thing. Um, and that has worked out really, really well for me. Um, and then I also let them be entrepreneurs within the firm. So if they have ideas for new businesses, I support them. And, and uh, some of our new things and initiatives that we've done actually have come from, from the staff. So my role in the organization has changed. Before, I was really doing everything from being the cleaning, <laughs> the cleaning professional <laughs> all the way to doing sales. Now I'm more strategy, mm. uh, more strategy in sales. And I look at uh, how to improve efficiency. So I think, you know, going back, I, I see a few defining moments in, in the company. One of them was when we got our first retail project because at the time it was just, it was just 22 stores, mm. which seems so small now considering we're getting contracts for literally hundreds of stores. But at that time, it was a really serious problem because I did not have, one, the resources, but two, the processes to handle 22 projects at mm. one time, including all of the other projects that we had going on. So I basically had to break down the company and start it from scratch all over again. Everything from the way that files were saved mm -hmm. on the server to the way that projects were managed and communication was flowed. We, we rebuilt it from the ground up to focus on efficiency and started to delegate projects within the team so everybody had a responsibility. Instead of just recreating a, a project all over again, like every single time. So. What I strive for now is to improve efficiency, make teams work better internationally since we have you know, 29 countries that we're working with, with the project teams in the offices, and, uh, and strategy, looking for the next thing. I'm always looking for the next thing. But when you learn all that, was it, uh, was it very much hardware, like uh, action-reaction, or you managed to have people that could you know, give you some good advice, people who were, you know, we're also entrepreneurs with company that maybe were more, uh, you know, advanced and more developed or more established at that time that could, you know, that could give you some recommendation. I wish that was the case. Uh, and I know that that is the case for many entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They had a mentor and someone that kind of took them under their wing. Um, that was not the case for me. Okay. I think f for me, it was a lot of just banging my head against the wall. And, um, and again, very much my wife being incredibly supportive and kind of my partner in crime in this. <laughs> and we just figure it out together. We make mistakes. We made some very mm -hmm. big mistakes, but then we don't make them twice. Mm. That's yeah. the key. That's the key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. So, um, I mean, I learned a lot about uh, green buildings. Uh, thank you for sharing. Sorry. <coughs> no, I'm the one You're coughing. The one you were the one supposed to be <laughs> too thick, and then maybe you know you pass it on to me. So better stop the podcast now. So um, thank you. Is there anything you know that you wanted to discuss and I didn't uh, I didn't address during the podcast? A question that would have been particularly smart and I didn't ask. Uh, <laughs> um, no, no, no. I think we covered mainly everything. Yeah. Okay. Good. And so, I mean, all the best for uh, 2020 because again, that's uh, we are in the uh, early days of um, January, and uh, all the best for the company. And um, yeah, let's uh, catch up for uh, another edition of this podcast in a couple of years when you have you will have much more to say, I'm sure. Yeah, I love okay. it. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Alessandro, for joining. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.